0: Welcome back or welcome to another On Coaching podcast with Magnus and Marcus. I am Steve Magnus and I am joined by my good friend, colleague, coaching partner, John Marcus. John, another day.
1: You know what time it is. It is time to give the people what they want and we're serving up a special one, a special treat with a little bit of whipped cream and cherry on top today. So, get ready to eat. All right,
0: and before we head straight into the dessert, just a mention of our sponsor, which is the High Performance West Scholar Academy of Scholarship. Sorry, excuse me. Uh, which is basically we sponsor
1: ourselves so we can't even get our own name right. Like that's we Steve, uh, we can get tied up our game. <laughs>
0: I know. I know. I will contact the marketing department. Okay. Um, you're talking and, to them. Yes. And, and let let them know, which is us. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, what is this thing that we can't get our name, the name right? The Academy of Scars. No, of you is.
1: can't get it right. I get it perfect, but uh, no, I wrote the name. It's like, come on.
0: That's right. That's right. Sorry. You know, I'm going to retire from introing our podcast.
1: No, you're the, you're the intro guy. All what? <laughs>
0: What is this thing? It is our all-encompassing one-stop shop for coaches' education where John and I pour every little bit of knowledge we've accumulated over the past decade-plus into helping you become better coaches. It's basically us filtering again a decade's worth of knowledge, reading, experience, training pra- programs, going to conferences, talking to other coaches, um, probably 50 different uh, training plans of actual elite athletes, all thrown in there, along with how to's for training understanding psychology physiology biomechanics strength and conditioning you name it it is in there and it is covered and it is updated every week for more and more and more stuff and it is the never-ending um fountain
1: or we might call it the fire hose
0: that you just open and it just sprays out information
1: it's basically the online costco of distance running Coaching, theory, education, history, training, background, you name it. You learn hard skills, X's and O's. You learn soft skills, you know, uh, how to relate to people, relationship things, culture, leadership dynamics. It's, as we know, coaching is something that you just don't get bored of because it's always a brand new challenge every day, every season. And this is just what Steve and I have on offer and what we continue to have on offer as we explore ourselves and try to get better and offer to everyone else an opportunity to get better themselves.
0: 100%. So, check that out. Um, The links are in the show notes at scienceofrunning.com. You can find a link and our discount is ending in a couple days actually. So, for the next couple days, you can get 50% off. So, check that out. That is soon ending. So, if you are at all interested um check it out and if you're not happy with it just contact us and we'll figure something out but you know the great thing we've had i think gosh three four hundred people sign up and very few to little to no complaints so
1: people love it 100% satisfaction guaranteed it sounds like to me that's that's right people
0: love it (laughs) if you don't like it you know We'll figure something out.
1: Well, and we love the people. And that's why we out here doing what we're doing, giving a lot of stuff away from free. But yeah, we go a little bit deeper there, a lot deeper. But again, just want to say thanks to everyone who's signed up and been a member. Thanks to everyone who's considered. And most importantly, thanks to everyone who has been listening and reading and been a part of Stephen Wise's journey and offering for a long, long, long time. So whether you actually vote with your wallets or you vote with your eardrums, thank you. All right, on
0: to the dessert. What are we Ooh. talking about today? It is being fit does not mean that you are going to run fast.
1: Oh, Oof. Oof. I can hear everyone's ears perk up a little bit because I thought the more fit you get, the more fast you are. It's a linear correlation, right?
0: Yeah, that's how it works, right?
1: <laughs> I Increased wish, fitness. man. I wish. <laughs>
0: <laughs> increase fitness, increase fastness. So, this is something that's interesting because in our sport, because it is so physiologically dominated, we tend to think that this correlation holds true, mm-hmm. that we get fitter, then we perform better, run faster. Other sports don't think of this correlation because their their um their sport isn't as physiologically dominated, right? There's more skills, other things that come into play, uh, so they understand that sometimes you can be in the best shape, the best fitness, but you know still lose the game. Mm-hmm. In ours, we tend to neglect that or negate it, and we tend to think, well, if I get as fit as I can, then I'm going to win or win and you know no by myself, meaning PR, run fast, all that stuff. But we've all been there as coaches where you've had that athlete who comes up to you after a race and he says, he or she says, coach, I don't get it. I've been doing all my runs, all my miles. I've been crushing workouts and I'm running slower. Mm -hmm. What's the deal?
1: Mm -hmm. And I think it's important before we go down this rabbit hole is to Just get our definitions uh, on the same page. So, what is fitness? Here we're we're talking about physical fitness, and this refers to the body's, or the athletes, or the person's ability of your body systems to work together efficiently to allow you to be healthy and perform your athletic activity with um, as little as uh, uh, effort as possible. So, being efficient means doing these daily activities with the least amount of effort possible. And that's where we get confused with fitness. So being very efficient at something versus fast and fast kind of in my mind, um, has to do a little bit more with physics, right? And the mode of work as defined by physics is let me bring up the working definition that I like to. I, I
0: hear a book turning
1: I, there. And turn it because I like to get these definitions right. Otherwise, what ends up happening, right, is we uh, end up going around and around and around in a dance where we are arguing about semantics about what people mean. So this is why I want to start off with some clear definitions. So sh- work done by an object is the amount of force applied to the object multiplied by the distance travel by the object in the direction that the force was applied that's the real f- physics as in science definition and that's where fast has to do with force and i'd also argue that being fast is a skill and skills are a little bit different than fitness there's an efficiency that's related to a skill but a skill is about uh repeatability so being able to uh, shoot a jump shot, golf swing, you name it. Those are skills versus uh, fitness is, again, about the ability of the body systems to work efficiently together to perform activities with the least amount of effort possible. And that's where I think the crux of this differentiation and misunderstanding might lie. Yeah, like
0: I like the idea of thinking of racing or performing as a skill. Mm-hmm. Because I think that frames it in a slightly different way that, again, from a a performance standpoint or from a running standpoint, a lot of times uh, us as coaches think our job is to just get someone as fit as possible.
1: Oh, how many and times have that- you ever heard it? Oh, they did these amazing workouts. They're ready to go. And what will race day didn't happen, you know, yeah. un- unfortunately. And that sucks. And that's what we want to unpack. So that doesn't happen to you or the athletes you work with in the
0: future. And, and- and i think the key here is is pretty obvious that like yes fitness plays a huge role right you cannot race fast if you are not fit but just because you are fit does not mean you are going to race fast so that that kind of simple understanding there is important to get across here because what we're try, trying to talk about is how do we make sure we translate this global quality of, let's say, fitness into this skill of racing, performing, running fast.
1: Mm, mm -hmm. Exactly. It takes an extra step. And I think that extra step sometimes is hard because the steps you need to take to get fit require a lot of effort and work and are difficult in and of themselves. But then to layer on or infuse your training or preparation with the skills you then need to be fast on race day, requires, again, another step of sophistication and already a very sophisticated and difficult uh, endeavor.
0: Yes. And so, let's dive into this a little bit. I think I remember episode, I don't remember what one it is, but a long time ago, we talked about training to train versus training to race. And I think that this gets on some of the similar concepts here is that we need to see or we need to understand that training for fitness is essentially accumulating load and a stimulus to adapt in a general way to get fitter. Right? It's putting more volume on, increasing the amount of reps, or whatever have you. You know, increasing the speed of 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 workouts to get physiologically fitter. But translating that skill is when we break down the race and we say, okay, what components are needed to race, like translate this fitness into race-specific or usable skill, right? And I'm going to attack this first from a psychological standpoint because what comes to mind is a couple of years ago, I did a pretty simple survey using a validated survey and asked my athletes during intervals, between intervals, after intervals, where their focus of attention was, right? And then I did the same thing again before and then mostly after races. And what you What you saw in looking at a bunch of college athletes' data is that athletes are focused on different things in practice than they are in a race. So, let me give you an example. In practice, they tend to be focused or they tend to use distraction more. They'll think of things outside of running. Um, They'll think of what they have to do during the day. They'll think of what classes they have. So, they'll use distraction. they very little do they use, very, you know, they don't use distraction very much in races. Similarly, when they're looking at intervals, they tend to break it down one rep at a time. So, they're not focused on the whole thing and they tend to be like, okay, just get through this next interval and then I'll, then I'll worry about the next one, right? If we have 10 400s, oh, let me get through number five, then I'll worry about number six. In a race, you can't do that. You can trick yourself to a little bit and be like, ah, just get to the next lap. But you always have to keep in mind the whole thing because in an interval set in practice, in the back of their mind, they can always have it in their head that, hey, I can just slow down or I can call it or I might not be able to do all of it and that's okay. In the race, you don't have that option. So, why am I pointing out these differences? Because from a psychological standpoint, When we're talking just general fitness, we're talking about developing the abilities that allow us to cope with, hey, just getting through the workouts. But that doesn't translate psychologically to the skills that we need during a race. During a race, you have to be attuned or be attentive, especially in shorter races on the track, the entire time. During an interval session... um, In practice, you can zone out because you know your teammates are going to hit the pace. So, you're not training that attention ability during fatigue, all that stuff. So, this is just one example from a psychological standpoint of surviving and getting fit doesn't always translate to developing the skill sets that you need when you are racing or performing.
1: Mm. And you see this a lot recently in the modern era with the, I would you know, overemphasis or over-prioritization of time trials and time trial races. So, you know, again, one reason I'm not a huge fan of time trials is they, they serve, they're not a means to an end. They're, um, they're just a step, right? And so the time trial, whether that's a workout, whether that's running at Stanford, whether that's having someone pace you at some other race, you know, that demonstrates fitness. Yes. But we also got to remember it doesn't necessarily mean you're fast in terms of competitive speed or competitive ability because you might not have, like Steve said, the coping skills in, in race day, but also, too, the ability or the stimulus set in practice to be able to do things that are demanded upon you in an unpredictable, varying environment. So if you talk to a lot of... Um, couldn't quote unquote, more old school coaches let's say who've been doing this for long and see where I've been live. they're huge fans huge fans by and large of consistency I found a fartlek and that fartlek uh, it gives people ability to do unlike you know random fartlek as you feel right type fartlek not all right I'm going to go and sit out and run you know 10 sets of four minutes on two minutes off fartlek it's Varying the play in the original terminology that the uh, Swedes and Finns use, which was just go by feel, speed play. So from this point to that point, being so in tune in the moment, right? And our, you know, now um, uh, linear uh Uh, data point like logical mindsets of today where we need to track everything and make a linear regression spreadsheet or post it on Strava or post it on some social media thing to validate the efficacy of the activities can't compute why you would just go out and just you know 30 seconds here 10 seconds here from this um, signpost to that uh, stop sign from this telephone pole to you know that car and just run as fast as you can. But I'd argue there is a lot of skill to be learned and being in the moment and just going from point to point as you feel. And if you keep doing that over and over and over again, you build a certain efficacy and a certain ability that is going to be unmatched by say the more rigid athlete who dutifully hit all their training programs uh miles reps sets rest intervals etc because when we get into the crucible of racing against other people that inherent unpredictability they're okay with they're at peace because they're in the moment and they have already practiced and refined their ability to make spot-on decisions as things happen without worrying about how they'll relate or impact them down the road and knowing they have a certain resiliency and robustness to respond. And you see this all the time, right? In championship races, everyone's so afraid of a certain pace that in especially like say middle distance or even distance events right on the track, they'll go out dog slow because they're just used to a very efficient you know, very well paced environment and they can have predictability that physiologically that's the most efficient way to run a race. And we don't have that variance. Otherwise all these physiological systems are thrown into outer space and then you could tie up at any moment. And that's a very fitness oriented mindset and narrative versus a fast or competitive narrative is saying, well, I'm kind of like Herb Elliott who just practiced running three minutes and 30 seconds as hard as I could over and over and over again, just on the street, in sand dunes, in whatever environment. And I just said, I'm just going to get used to what I think will be the time duration it will take to run all out to win the Olympic gold medal. And then sure enough, Herb Elliott goes out and runs and wins the Olympic gold medal, Olympic record time in like whatever it was, 334, right? Well, why? I mean, one big reason I'd argue is because of his ability to understand that, yes, I need to be fit and have efficiency in my physiological or body's ability and processes to play or run at this level, but also I need to be fast and psychologically robust and resilient so I can go out and just know for sure I can crank for this period of time without the added feedback that now people need as a comforting device that it was fast enough. Was it fast enough? Was the time trial good enough? I mean, where's the comparative mark here, right? Because as you get more fit, then yes, the time should go down, but if it's not in harmony with building of the skill of competitive fastness as we're calling it for our purposes today, then you did all this work and you only really got halfway.
0: Yeah, I love that that story on herbellion because again, it's it's very simple, but it gets the job. It's super done. sophisticated.
1: It I mean it <laughs> yeah. takes a certain leap to make to understand why it works. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it it's really poignant. It's really powerful. And you know, unfortunately we just don't have enough of that right now. I'm gonna go on a little tangent, get on a little soapbox where it's like oh uh, yeah, watch out. Here we go. Uh, you know, coaching today, and I'm guilty of this too. And I realize my error now in hindsight, obviously it's where you can sometimes get too prescriptive as coaches and saying, we, here's all the f- activities that we need the athletes or athletes that we're working with to do to produce what a certain degree of fitness. And here's the certain uh, harmony and pattern and, you need to follow this to a T and if you know we give it, we try to give the athletes comfort by reinforcing if you do everything I say in the way I say it, at the pace I say, at the time I say, and that I've prescribed and I have you know written, you'll get the reward you seek, which is, you know, being more competitive um and having a, a a really memorable season of competition, or winning the race or running the time, or a synthesis of all of the above. However, what we've done inadvertently is we've taken away the exploratory and independence of the athlete to a certain degree by scheduling out and regimenting every single day and then having that reporting. And it's very much a product of kind of industrialism in our Western mindset, which is very efficient and very effective to a point. But now when we get on the edges here where we're trying to really level up from, you know, level nine to level 10, the Agent, or the differentiation that needs to happen is that uh, ownership by the athlete to know when and where to do something, and also to just be able to have the confidence that they, as themselves, not in comparison to the clock, not in comparison to, to their teammates or you know, some other standard bearer out there, whether it's some social media entity or a, a, a ranking list of some sort that that person on their own merit has enough judgment has enough uh, value has enough training and has explored enough this activity to be able to make a call and go for it whenever they want. I'll never forget, you know, uh, an athlete I worked with Nathan Fleck at Portland state, you know, you ended up being like a one fifty 800 meter kid in high school and um, was a 147 uh, guy a couple of years later. You know, so big jump. Um, but we called him nasty because he would just do nasty things and he'd just do them. And it was interesting because this kid would train his senior year. He trained himself because he went to a little, little, little high school in the middle of nowhere, Oregon. And he trained himself and he decided to run everything from the marathon down to the 100 meters in the spring sports season. So he ran a marathon, you know, in early March. And he also ran the 100 meters. He ran all the different events, half marathon, 10K. He found road races on the weekends, just ran them for fun. He ended up winning the high school, uh, small school state championship in the 800, leading from wire to wire, right? And it was a state championship meet record. And the kid basically was self-taught you know, in a lot of ways, he had some guidance from coaches, but they were really hands off. And so I work with him. And, you know, when I was coaching university, I was very much a hands on, very prescriptive type coach, because it was in my earlier years of coaching. And I realized, like, early on, you can't coach Nathan that way, he needed to be coached in a different way, he needed just to be able to do things. Like A good example would be like, the middle distance group one day was doing three times 600 meter workout. And the goal was to like run them all somewhere around like 90 seconds to 97 seconds. So, you know, everyone's on the same page. And it's a group of about five or six you guys. Um, and then Nasty goes and takes off and just runs the thing at, you know, the first one at 84 seconds. Just blitzes it. And it's like, dude, what are you doing? He goes, I just thought that'd be more valuable. And then he was just done for the rest of the workout. He was totally like, all his physiological systems were shot. Acidosis was so high. He couldn't recover. Like I had to pull him, you know, after like 200 meters of the second rep because he wasn't even going to run 40 seconds for it. <laughs> it was like, he was done. And I said, like, did just sit down? So his, you know, um, teammates got the workout in as design. But who's to say Nathan didn't get more out of that? By just deciding in the moment to blitz a six hundred at, you know, crazy fast for just a given Tuesday in the middle of the day, uh, workout. But maybe he took away the confidence in his in his ability that he inherently had that capacity to run that fast, and then he didn't know he had it before. And we had like a a coach athlete, like uh, you know, one on one afterwards, and I just asked him like you know, why he did it and what value he found of it. And he goes, I just wanted to see if I could. And I go, that's great. But, you know, we, we also got to think now about what the role task is as a 800-meter runner on a collegiate team. Like, you have to do rounds. You have to go day by day. You have to bounce back. Like, and I really like you're giving it everything you have, and that's a really vital ability. But if you do that in the first round of a championship race you, and without the proper fitness – building behind you you might not have the ability to bounce back and recover quick enough to then be fresh enough to come back and do it again the following day to get out of the the semi into the final and so it was this dialogue with Nathan about you know I don't want I didn't want to take away his sense of ownership and uh, curiosity from him but at the same time too I wanted to kind of direct him into a understanding about what he needed to be prepared with as a scholastic um, 800 meter athlete about the reality of the demands he was going to face further down the road in those championship crucibles that he wanted to compete in
0: you don't want to tame the horse always
1: Mm -hmm. exactly yeah is that Tom Teles quote. What is that Tom Teles quote? Because it sounds like it.
0: It sounds like it. It could be. I don't know. My 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 memory is fading. So you know, <laughs> as I get old and uh, locked inside. So, um, so we'll see. Yeah. Okay. But, <laughs> but you know. Um, <laughs> I think there's a lot of truth when we look at at racing. A lot of times, like, we think, like, create the fittest person. But sometimes we can have detrimental effects in creating that fitness that keeps them from fulfilling their racing potential, right? If everything is cold and calculated, then, like, when it's not – when it's not calculated when it's not predictable things fly out the window you know i've had similar college athletes who man they were awful at pacing workouts awful and the coach in me like wants to always correct but what i learned is for certain athletes like that's what made them good and it wasn't You know, I would make remarks here and there, but there were certain athletes that, you know what, I just needed to let the wild horse run because every once in a while they were going to put something together and do something because they didn't have this limitation on here's what I've been running my mile repeats at, here's what I should go out at, here's what I should do. They just kind of listened to their body and didn't go out insane all the time. But it was ahead of maybe what their fitness would have predicted. But they were just kind of listening to their body and flowing with it. And I had to let them develop that and keep that. And sometimes it annoyed the, the hell out of their training partners. You know, They'd be like, why did so-and-so go five seconds too fast for this repeat? Like you said, you know, 450 and they ran 442. What the heck, man, we're only on number one. I'm like, you know what? He might be feeling it today, so just just let it go. Like, this gets you ready for racing. And some it would annoy the hell out of. And I get that. Like, myself as an athlete, I probably would have been annoyed at some point. But, you know, I think that there's a difference between teaching and taming. And sometimes we need to, like make sure that we're
1: not taming oh you said it yes yeah yeah and that's a that's a hard balance right teaching you know versus taming because a lot of times we think people are wild or they need this taming but it ends up being more of an authoritative uh teaching versus an actual like transformer transformative teaching
0: yes exactly and I think that I, I think that is uh, the key there as a coach when we're looking at translating fitness to fastness. We'll say is like what skills are there that the athlete has that you can develop? Where do you need to steer them, and then how do you keep them? You know, kind of keeping whatever makes them good, especially at the college or pro level, is even as a college coach, like we get athletes who were largely successful at what they were doing because they made it to this next level, right? And it's our job to take those gifts and help them develop and flourish. But I think far too often, we just kind of take the lazy route, which is like beat them down and fit them and force them into our system, and then just say, well, if you do A, B, and C, and increase your fitness by X amount, you're going to get fast. And that happens for some people, but for others, it fails them.
1: Yeah, and I think this comes back to again our overreliance on reductionist thought, right? Where we try to take something that's highly, highly complicated that has is multifactorial that we don't necessarily know all the factors that influence the end product, break it down into the simplest you know, separate components, and then work on the simple to complex, right? And that can work depending on if you have a very, um, uh, like if you have a newbie, if you have a very young athlete, and they will get, if you just run miles or if you just, you know, do certain series of workouts on repeat, initially, because the stimulus is so new, they will get better. At performing the, those types of activities, so they'll increase endurance. They'll increase, uh, you know, a little bit of foot speed. Like they'll, you know, increase stamina. But it comes at a certain ceiling, and that's the thing, right? How do we maintain progress and help athletes not plateau? And we have uh, d- several different types of plateaus, right? We have physical plateaus, psychological plateaus, neuromuscular plateaus, like nutritional plateaus, like places where they've reached the ceiling and. Our job as coaches is to help move them or direct them or guide them or orient them towards breaking that ceiling. And this is where we have to just really question our framework because I used to think a lot in that linear pro- progressive manner where we're taught this model, the, the you know, one of the main models is periodization, right? You start from point A, which is low fitness to point C, D, E, F, whatever you want, which is peak fitness or peak performance, right? And here's how you get it with varying degrees of volume and quality. And there's a dance between the two. More and more and more, I've come to realize it's actually, progress is a movement of oscillation. And what I mean by that is there's really high variance in um, how fit or how fast or how capable someone gets depending on the trajectory of their season, right? Number one rule of thumbs always don't get someone hurt. Like, you're always trying to avoid injury because if you get injured, you've automatically retarded the um, fitness and competitive uh, increasing process, right? So, first, that's the first rule, right? Do no harm, the Hippocratic Oath in a lot of ways. And, you know, we also have to, too, remember when it comes to, like, progress, not all activities are created equal. You can't just do more of the same activity over and over and over again at Finium and think you'll get better, right? You can't run 80 miles and then reach a fitness plateau and go, okay, now run 100 and now run 120 and 140 and so on and so forth and think you'll get the same rate of return. It doesn't work like that, right? Everyone has a certain stimulus ceiling, as I call it, where certain stimuli, they have a threshold, and if they go beyond that, it's actually diminished returns. It's not uh, more return, right? Right. Um, You know, that's why some people are more low mileage oriented or some people thrive on higher mileage because the individual variance is the determining factor on whether they'll get that rate of return on the investment in that activity and for the duration of that. What I call for and what Steve and I call for a lot is a more integrative coaching approach where you're considering a lot of different multifactorial stimuli at different stages, which are hard traceable physical activities. Sprinting, weightlifting, uh, plyometrics, med ball, uh, long runs, tempo runs, classical workouts, fartleks, max speed, max velocity, power hills—you name it. Right? There's all these ingredients um, versus a more um, conventional thinking, which is just do more of the thing that got you good, and you'll get more gooder. <sighs> And that's really one of the cows we, we sacred cows we try to slay on this podcast is because it's super seductive and easy to, get, to fall in that. Well, this worked, so I'm just going to keep going back to this well, right? I'm going to keep going to the well over and over and over again because I know there's water here. But as Steve and I talk about, you know, you can't go to the well, the same well all the time, you expect the same rate of return. Eventually, it's going to dry up, and that's what makes this game so hard um, and so interesting, I think and figuring out how to navigate that.
0: Variation, my friend.
1: (laughs) Yes. Variety is the spice of life, as they say. And when and where is the greatest question that we all face as coach and athlete, because as much as we want to make an athlete conform to our program of training, every training plan has to be bespoke. It has to be N of one, because all training is a case study for that person. And yeah, we can zoom out and say there's a lot of macro consistencies, right? If you apply this type of work over this type of period of time, you'll have this type of improvement. But again, when you zoom in, the oscillations are much wider and there's way more variance. And that's where like as a coach, it's really important to get a general sense or understanding of who your athlete is and what they respond well to and what they don't and what they've been exposed to and what they haven't.
0: That's why every single coach in history, every coach that we hold up, even now as masters of the coaching craft, have utterly and completely failed with a handful of runners at at minimum. And it's
1: usually early on in their career, right?
0: Yep, yep, it is. And it's, you know, the certainty of it, like, is... is, (laughs) is appealing, but it's difficult. And I think the longer, the, the more you go into your career, the more of those wells you've kind of dipped into, right, and tapped out. And we talked about this way back in the early days of the podcast where we said the clean slate phenomenon, where we talked about how high school athletes are a clean slate so all their wells are full. And you can just dip, 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 dip in whatever you want, and they're going to adapt because they're haven't tried anything. They're a bundle of hormones, growth hormones going crazy. So you can you can throw anything at the wall almost and have it stick and, and adapt and develop. But as as you progress as an athlete, both in terms of maturity, but also in terms of training load, is the ability to go to that same well over time diminishes, and you have to look for different wells to to um, to try and and dive into. And I think that's what we're getting at here: is the it's not that high volume training or high volume interval work or fast speed work or hills or whatever whatever component is bad, it is not that they won't help increase fitness, but what we're saying is the translation from fitness in doing the activity to running fast and performing varies and often diminishes over time as your body kind of stops adapting in the same way that it did when it was novel and new. And and our job as coaches is to figure out, okay, how do we create new stimulus? How do we vary the stimulus? How do we develop these skills in different ways to keep that transfer and that translation happening over an athlete's career?
1: And that's where it's like, you know, we have to make differentiation between fitness and fast, right? Because fitness is a state of being. It's a state of physical fitness and healthiness, right? I'm fit. I run 80 miles a week. That's fit. Could I go out and race a time trial 5K tomorrow in under 17 minutes? Probably not because I'm not skilled. I'm not fast because I haven't been practicing those skills. And that's where I think – we do have to understand speed is a skill. I know, you know, Stuart McMillan and other people might argue that it's not, but I, I think it is because there is a repeatability to how your body is producing that force over time. And it requires certain learnings um, from a biomechanic and mechanical standpoint about how to position your body in a cyclical motion over time uh, for a certain period to produce that skill. And that's where you know, we have to look at what is the adaptive tolerance or adaptive sensitivity of an athlete, right? So early on, you know, Steve and I talk about the high school athlete, you know, and the clean state phenomenon, their adaptive sensitivity through the roof, you, you put almost any stimulus in front of them, they're going to adapt overnight, right? You hear people talk about omega waves or HRV monitoring of younger kids, athletes, like they can go play all day, go to sleep, wake up, HRV is through the roof, 100% recovered, ready to go because their adaptive sensitivity is really high. Because activity is information, and work is information, right? So the work you do is informing the system or the organism. And the work you also don't do isn't in, in some way informing the organism because it's not an input. So they're ignoring it. And this is where I think Steve and I really try to um, open minds and saying, say for lydiard for example who we reference often the reason lydiard so attractive is because it is in a nice sequential reductionist clean clear cuts and breaks of progress right there's an endurance phase there's the hill bounding you know phase there's the workout phase this and then there's a the freshing up phase it's clean it's neat 6 months for this 2 months for this 3 months for that you know you can follow along pretty quickly easily and People who have clean slates who attempt that program find a lot of benefit from it because obviously their adaptive stimul or sensitivity is through the roof. Now the athletes Steve and I work with, who tend to be older, eight, ten year veterans of competitive running, their adaptive sen- adaptive sensitivity to certain stimuli is pretty pretty blunted by the time we get them because they either did this type of training a lot in college or and or high school or this type of training before so what we're always looking for is where's the adaptive sensitivity the highest so sometimes that will also change with an athlete as you work with them year to year right so and that's really hard for an athlete to get on board with sometimes i found because one of the key things we human beings want is a sense of safety and comfort And why would I not continue to do the thing I did the previous year or previous season that got me good? Why don't I just do that again, but more of it, you know, or faster or higher quality of it in the exact same pattern, exact same sequence? Because we, I now have a case study of this work was done in the off season and during the season. These were the race results I produced and these race results are the best I've ever had, whether time, place, or a blend of both. So why not do it, do that just on repeat again? That's so easy to fall into. And I've lost and stopped and discontinued working with athletes who want to maintain that posture because the reality is if we do it again, and even if you increase the volume or if you accelerate the intensity, the degree of adaptive sensitivity won't be there. And what we often find too is this desire to just be so fitness focused that What's your resting heart rate? What's your hematocrit? You know, what's your HRV? Like we use these data points as proxies to define fitness, which they are. Don't get me wrong. But then you hear, as a race director, I hear about all the time from agents and coaches. Oh, they're so fit. They're doing the workouts of their life. They're ready to run this fast. They're ready to run this fast. This is a frequent thing I hear all the time. And then on race day, I have no doubt the athlete looks fit. You know, they have all the Uh, superficial external markers of fitness and yet they don't come close to running the mark that they're very knowledgeable and very smart coaches and agents said they were capable of doing because there was this translation gap between fitness and fast or fitness and competitive and this is where i think little things right that we tend to take for granted like technique is critical You know, when you say that's a high school coach, one thing I would do if I go back to high school coaching or I'd encourage any high school coach is to just focus so much on technique because the range of motion and technique, um, when those are emphasized, the speed and fastness will follow. But the inverse is not true, right? If you emphasize more work or faster work early to get that short-term dopamine hit, without the proper investment in the range of motion or technique of how we're moving or how we're doing something, how running is different than jogging, different than sprinting, or in the weight room, or with drills, or what have you, if you don't give that athlete when they're young, and that clean slate, that ability to orient their body in a certain technical manner and give them that skill so you can repeat it over and over and over again, it's going to get pretty tough for them because they're going to be like Shaq and not be able to ever hit a free throw in their adult professional career. If Shaq was taught how to shoot a free throw at age you know, 13 instead of just going and dunk all the time, I'm sure, sure Shaq would have been an amazing free throw shooter. But he never was taught that. And by the time it became a, a, lim- a limiting factor, a limb fact, when he was a professional, it was a little too late for him to invest all the amount of technical time at the expense of his current performance or what expectation performance he had to make that a thing where it's like okay i gotta make gotta make my free throws otherwise you wouldn't have had the great Hack-a-Shack phenomena of the early 2000s <laughs> so <laughs> you know that's kind of my my soapbox on this because it is worth understanding and worth unpacking because down the road whether we know it or not as coaches what we don't do Or what we ignore, so to speak. The earlier we ignore something in an athlete's um, competitive career, the the more likely it's going to become a limiting factor for either for definitely that athlete and or for you or another coach down the road.
0: The Shaq idea is or analogy is a good one. You know, Michael Jordan trying to play baseball is another one. Yeah, exactly. Um, It's it you know, and Jordan played baseball in high school, but like
1: then he took like
0: fifteen years off. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So, what what you're trying to do is if you're looking at a a a runner, is you're trying to make sure there's not fifteen year gap there between (laughs) skill sets, or you're you're trying to make sure that you have the skill sets and flexibility to utilize things when when they need to. So, as an example, right. If we take an athlete um, who's more of a distance orientated athlete and we just say, you know what, the key for him is to get really fit and we're going to pile a lot of volume and a lot of volume of intervals and tempos and all that stuff on them in high school to get them really fit and that's going to translate to fastness. Well, it does. But then what happens is if you haven't developed these other skill sets, maybe maybe Um, sprinting, maybe strength and coordination, maybe something as simple as changing of gears, right, during races instead of, you know, time trial type stuff in high school or simply running fast. Um, If you haven't developed these other skill sets, by the time that this athlete needs them, maybe once they get on to the college level or, you know, if they're extremely talented, the professional level, Then it becomes, oh, we haven't developed these skill sets. Um, We can, but it takes a lot more time and ability at this point. And now they're limiting factors. Because the thing to remember here is our limiting factors shift as we develop. So, early on, right, our limiting factor for high school kids is inevitably fitness. Because most have never trained or most do not train, right? And then you get to high school, you join cross country and track and you start training. Fitness is the limiting factor. But at some point, fitness, the limiting factor of that is going to decrease so that now it's translating that fitness into the skill of racing, right? Into the skill of performing, of running fast, et cetera, et cetera. Or it might shift from, can shift between. It might start from a uh, oxygen intake standpoint as the limiting factor, and it might shift towards, we'll keep it simple and say an acidosis limiting factor of racing a mile or, or uh, you know, whatever, 800, 5k, whatever you want to call it, right? Um, And we won't go into the science too much, but like the limiting factors shift. And our goal as a coach is to um, prepare so that as those shift, we are prepared to shift the direction of our training slightly to compensate for this, right? Um, one of my good friends, uh, Adam Didick, who's a coach, when we were talking about this a uh, month or two ago, he's talking about one of his world-class marathon runners and he said, you know, the great thing about the Australian season, because the seasons are flipped essentially, Because of, you know, Mm -hmm. Southern Hemisphere, he said, it essentially lends ourselves to have a track season every year in between your guys' marathon seasons. And he was like, that I think has has helped develop my athletes more so because we inevitably, even if it's only for two or three races, we inevitably end up on the track at some point. It's that ability to go back to that 5K and 10K training that allows you to minimize um, the effects of going solely focused on marathon training for so long, which means you get to make sure that you're always touching on what could potentially become a limiting factor, which is the speed side instead of the endurance side. So if we go all endurance all the time, then eventually you're going to run into this roadblock of, well, my half marathon time and marathon pace, uh, there's not a big enough gap, right? The gap has decreased so much that now my limiting factor is that half marathon speed. Well, that's the beauty of being able to go back to this track season, working on your 5K and 10K, which then translates to being able to run a half ter- faster half marathon, which then translates to being able to have a little more space in that gap so that when we go back to marathon training, we can close it again. And I think that is one of the keys there that kind of gets at our limiting factors change, but we need to continually be working on this wide variety so that when we need to, we can shift gears, develop it, and that way we're not running into these roadblocks by being uh, singularly focused all the time.
1: And that's as a coach, you have to identify what's a liability and what's an asset currently for an athlete. So high school athletes and brand new athletes, everything's a liability basically. So that's why you can you know really focus on, say, the limiting factor of – basic endurance or general efficiency or fitness and you can see a a really rapid rate of improvement in that um, new athlete that's out versus sometimes those liabilities shift to become assets right and you know steve you said it there as you're talking and we tend to be a little sloppy as endurance coaches talking about what fast is and fast to me is not um a a really high efficacy or efficiency of anti-fatiguing throughout the duration of an activity. That's We tend to think of FAST being how long can you maintain an even pace, right? How long can you be go without with minimal fatigue during the course of the endurance activity, one mile, 10 miles, a marathon. FAST, we have to remember, is tied to rate of force development, which is tied to high threshold motor endurance. So, if your body can't physically produce the force because you didn't uh, have the athlete or you as the athlete didn't spend a lot of time increasing the neuromuscular uh, capacity and ability of your electrical and neural chemical systems to fire at such a rate to make this force happen out of nowhere then you're not going to be fast or have that rate of force development even at the end of a race, even if you are so unfatigued because you're so fit, quote-unquote, or you're so efficient at minimizing the fatiguing agents so that you can then utilize this, quote-unquote, speed. And this is where the misnomer or the misunderstanding lies in distance coaching is we just think if we take care of the endurance or anti-fatigue or fitness component, the athlete will naturally have speed at the end because they'll be less fatigued than other people. Now, that does work in that situation where it's a game of who can fatigue the least. But if you now run up into a situation like a championship meet or a meet against peers, fitness peers, I should say, people who have a similar ballpark of fitness and anti-fatiguing ability for the pace you guys are, going at for the first two thirds, three quarters, you know, whatever of the race, then the distinguishing element comes in the last phase in the bell lap or the last little bit of the race, who has the better rate of force development, uh, ability, you know, who has the bigger rate of force development, uh, ceiling or higher floor. And, you know, I always go back to the athletes I work with and identifying once they get to a certain efficacy and, their liability of fitness or endurance for their um, specific uh, competitive profile gets to a good enough state for the level that they're playing the game at, we then have to look at what's the new, li- new liability. And for most people, it is rate of force development or, quote-unquote, pure speed or a certain degree of speed. And so you have to then identify how much pure speed or fresh speed or max speed does this athlete need coupled with – the amount of endurance or the amount of anti-fatigue ability do they need to get into a stage of the races they want to run and the frequency of those races, whether it's days or weeks or months, the level of competition of those races, what other assets and abilities their, their competitors have. You take that all into consideration. You integrate that, right? It's integral, integral thinking. And then you say, well, they're going to need to be able to run, four times 400 at 52 with four minutes rest to be able to have a legitimate shot to compete, to win this championship, or they might need to be able to run uh, four by a mile. If they're a marathoner at this, you know, threshold with this much rest. So now you're blending all those things, right? Rate of force development, the speed, the anti fatiguing by having it over and over and over again, uh, you know, four bouts of this work and then playing with the, um, recovery ability of it the fitness factor and then you can say now that workout or series of workouts i should say because again it's we tend to think one workout is the determining workout when really it's a series of workouts over a long period of time three months or so that really have more determination over an athlete's readiness than that one amazing workout they did when everything was perfect that thing that's the driver now that colors us as coaches to be able to make a really informed decision about the direction the training must go instead of just taking, you know, what I call the, um, you know, coach on the couch approach and just flip through the channels and just be like, well, we did a couple speed workouts at the end of the season, so we'll be good to go. <laughs> it's like, oh, but it doesn't work like that. It you, it fools you. You think it that that's the way because you might be trying to run a really shortened linear approach, which is a big long like and you just do the percentages right, you go a big long period of endurance or fitness work. Followed by a little bit of, you know, workout or fitness bounding and, you know, race work and then a little bit of speed or freshing up work. But the reason Lydia's durations were over the course of the year is because that is actually about how long it really takes people to morphologically, physiologically, and neurologically adapt to these repeated bouts of stimulus over and over and over again you know Anatoly Bondarchuk in throwing understood the same thing he would have athletes do the same exact workouts throwing workouts and lifting workouts exact same exact same twice a day for a adaptation block and for some athletes the adaptation block was 50 sessions some athletes it was 30 sessions some athletes it was 70 sessions and they would go the same activity the only thing that would change would be either the weight that they, um, or the weight would never change. The only thing would be the speed at which they move their weight and the distance at which they threw their implement. And when those things really um, increased and the speed got way faster or the and or the distance of the implement being thrown in practice got way f- um, further, then he would change the entire set of stimuli. Everything, just completely throw out all the exercises they did, not even visit them because his uh, philosophy was, you've adapted fully to these exercises. We can't get any more reward. It's just busy work at this point. So now we're going to do a whole new different set to then adapt to that new stimuli on repeat. And it is one of the most interesting things that uh, Bonerchuk came up with because he was a scientist, a theorist, and also a coach who had two feet in the crucible of competitive Uh, fire all the time that his peers who might have just been coaches or just been theorists and scientists didn't really have and I've studied him a lot and there are applications to what we do in distance running and the great coaches have some um, influence or I should say have some uh, echoes of what Bonnerchuk did the principle of it to their training as well but it doesn't mean we just have to keep doing the same old same old same old just running more running more running more running more or running more as our average training run get faster to get fitter sometimes like when let's say tara Walling's example sometimes the answer is more for her when i worked with her was actual more recovery because she came from a program that was no recovery before i worked with her right the oregon project was 100 miles per hour every day and if you ran slower Something was wrong with you versus my program had to be what's the, the novel stimulus. The novel stimulus here is recovery. Eight minute mile runs like because that allows you to bounce back from the work being done. And so sometimes it's not always going to be uh, more work. It's going to be the sequence of work or the relationship of work to rest. That might be the agent that really propels someone to peak performance. I think there's an equation out there, Steve, that might help.
0: Maybe it's stress plus rest equals growth.
1: Oh my goodness!
0: <laughs> yeah. So, so let's let's sum this up because I think this is important. We are not saying that fitness is not important. Okay, you need the fitness, right? Okay, you need it, to be efficient. Uh, I, Amen. Yeah. Yes, like. You need it, okay? But at at some point, your limiting factors shift, okay? And you want to be prepared for that shift. So the way I like to think of it is, if we're talking on the world level, right, we can't spend our time focused on the kick, developing a kick so that we can meddle if we aren't even there with a lap to go.
1: Uh, Yeah,
0: 100%. (laughs) But we can't focus so much on getting there with a lap to go And then worrying about developing our our ability to kick, let's say, Mm -hmm. if we haven't laid the foundation to then develop that skill, right? So, think of it as a coach as, yes, you are developing fitness in a variety of ways, but you are laying the foundation to develop the skill of performance from a psychological standpoint, from a speed standpoint, from a force application standpoint, from whatever you want to... A bi- biomechanical standpoint and that's what we're talking about as a coach is don't wait five years and then be like oh we've tapped out this uh, aerobic fitness development now it's time to develop something else is it's just like you said in that bonder chuck thing is like every once in a while you got to develop a different skill and shift it entirely so that that skill set is readily available when you're limiting factor shift and you need that to compete at whatever next level you get at
1: yeah and that's i think too we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about robustness and fitness is a robust increasing uh, perspective and activity and like gearing yourself towards increased fitness means you're more robust, but robustness has another dimension or um, a- another side to it that we also have to consider, which is resiliency and resiliency is the ability of a system to embrace unintended, you know, um, shocks and continue on and, in In a similar direction, or with a similar ability, and so making a robust athlete is all the rage because you want someone to be able to do more or better work, but also too, the reality of racing and competition is there you need to have a certain degree of resiliency, and in the moment, have an unplanned shock be administered to you, whether it's the conditions, the competition, a synthesis of all those things in between, and yet still have the athlete to respond in kind and bounce back from that shock instead of being completely uh, corroded and completely um, just muted, I'd say, with a lack of ability to respond to whatever that shock may be. And that's what we, you know, I think as coaches is the paradigm and the Holy Grail, so to speak, is finding out that blend for each athlete for each period of time in their career because that is the thing that's always shifting
0: yep i kind of summed it up better i think that's a great place to uh end as always we hope that you enjoyed this uh meandering tangent filled episode which is our trademark but there's a lot of good Resources there. We'll list some of the resources we talked about in Bonduchak, Herb Elliott, uh, other individuals uh, we talked about in the show notes, and also a link to the Scholar program. If you'd like to take advantage of that fifty percent off for the next few days, and why
1: Richard. wouldn't you? You'd be foolish not to. Half off is a great deal. Come on.
0: <laughs> there you go. There's there's the there's the pitch. So. <laughs> Until next time, thank you for everybody reaching out. We had a lot after last episode reaching out to John and I on Twitter and social media and email telling us what they enjoyed, what they didn't, um, all that good stuff. Always helpful, always great to hear from whoever in this world that the surprisingly tens of thousands of people who listen to us rant on. Because we're the people's um,
1: champ, baby. That's right. We're here to give you what you want. So thank so you. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. And until next time. Enjoy your running. Stay safe.